0: You know, I love, I hope you found that we're going to do everything that blesses and not burdens, right? right? I think that's just, I think everybody has kind of tagged on to the uh, phrase out of our workbook this week that we're going to do what blesses and not burdens of so getting up and getting coffee and getting pineapple and cantaloupe blesses you, you get up and get it and it's not a burden to anybody, you just go right on ahead. Let's pray together because we have a night ahead of us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Um, I think I was just overwhelmed in study this week. Not only did I feel like I was like back in school doing an amazing amount of homework and study and digging and um, just just asking for your wisdom and asking for a depth of understanding and and God most well two things one, just prayerfully God that you were sort of transporting me back into what was going on at the time and why this was such a critical part of salvation history. And then God just ask you to give us all a heart sense, a mind sense and a heart sense of your infinite, magnificent, divine, supernatural plan of salvation. Because really, in all the nuts and bolts of this week, That's really what rises to the top, is your plan, your plan of salvation and what it means to come through faith, what it means grace, what it means to receive mercy. It's an incredible plan, and as we just studied and looked and read and tried to understand and And get a grasp of everything that was going on, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit is teaching us of your great love. Because that's the bottom line. Because your love will ultimately transform our hearts. We get a hold of mercy, understand grace, and experience your love in depths that we've never experienced before. Because your love is so extravagant that we, Father, we can understand it experience it your spirit fills us up with your love not ours so that we can pour it out God I thank you as we gather tonight Holy Spirit I ask you to come to teach to take the words the hum- just the human words that I speak and that you will embed them supernaturally into our hearts and into our minds as we come to study God I never forget that this is really an act of worship We come to study, but God, we want to humble our hearts. We want to abide in your word. We want to be doers of your word. And all of that is truly a surrender of the flesh so that we can glorify you in everything that we do. What an amazing thing can happen in the next two hours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to just welcome you back, and I know we've got some new faces tonight, and I am thrilled that you have come to join us. Um, I will, at the end of the session, we'll get the uh, small groups divided back up. If you're here for the first time and you're not even sure what in the world's going on, that's okay, because you're going to hear a message. Um, The workbooks in front of you, if you've got your James um, workbook, will be filling in some blanks throughout the message and then you will be divided up into small groups so that you can discuss um, the homework and the work in the workbook that you've done this week. So we've got a lot on going on and um, most of all we hope that you are Falling in love deeper and deeper with Jesus, and then uh, as you begin to grow roots, I love the fact that we have a lot of different churches here, a lot of different uh, walks of life here. It's fantastic. We want you to uh, grow deep roots among us for this community, because ultimately what we want to do is reach others um, with the salvation message of Jesus Christ. So tonight, I want you to go ahead and take open your workbooks. We're going to be in page on page 40 and 41. That's where we will be filling in some blanks. And then if you'll take your Bibles and open to the book of James, we finally made it to the book of James. However, we're going to only study one verse tonight together, and then you will spend this coming week, the next five days, you'll be in the book of James a little bit more in depth. So the first verse of James, and then uh, page 40 and 41 in your, in your uh, workbooks. So this week, you've spent some time um, doing some backup work, again, from the message about who James is and this, this specific James that we are studying, the half-brother of Jesus and the writer of the book of James. And I encouraged, the I, I had a, a wonderful opportunity, although uh, Wanda happened to be out of town, so I got to lead her small group last week, and we went through the introduction, and I think most of the small groups did. But if you're here tonight for the first time, I have to encourage you to please read through the introduction in your manual. Because in that introduction, you are challenged at five different levels. And all that that means is, and it's prefaced by not only Beth Moore but reiterated by me and by your small group facilitators, that what we want you to do throughout this um, these next weeks together is that you're doing what blesses and not what burdens. In other words, if if one week that you come that first week and you are, or the or during the week and you have not done any homework and at this point you're just coming to the message on Wednesday night fabulous. You come. You come. Do the homework. I will encourage you to do the homework. I want you to do the homework because it's there where you're in the Word. um, You're praying through it. You're learning. It's a fabulous experience. But I don't want you to not come on Wednesdays just simply because you feel like you just couldn't get it all done. You just come anyway. So, So those levels of just coming to the message, doing your homework, the next part of of the the um, the challenges of levels was to begin to read those extra notes within the week. If you had an opportunity to read those, they were written by uh, Beth Moore's daughter, Melissa. So I hope you had an opportunity to do that. I'm going to make a reference to one tonight. Then there's the challenge and the level to begin to write the book of James, which I think is a a very fabulous exercise to do as well. If it's something you've never really done before, it's, uh, it's amazing to, to copy and handwrite those um, verses as you travel through them um, through the course of the study. And then, of course, the fifth challenge. Anybody know what the fifth challenge is? We all memorized that part. Isn't that great? <laughs> we memorized the fifth level. Oh, I, don't, I don't know about that. What I'm going to do next week, we couldn't get it queued up quite right, but, um next week, I will show you Beth Moore has like a ten minute tutorial it 's just her recommendation about um memory work, and you can use it obviously for anything some of us need it for our phone numbers but um you know it's but it is for scripture specifically so I will show you that I think it's very helpful um and it is it's it's a challenge she sort of bases it on giving you about five months, five to six months to do the whole thing, to try to memorize it. If you're an overachiever, you go right ahead, have it ready next week. You can come on up and do it. Um, but whatever, whatever level, whatever time frame, again, do what blesses and not what burns. You may memorize one verse. And you know what? That's one more truth just embedded in your heart. There may be one verse that just, strikes you through this study, and that's the one you want to just cling to. That's the one that you want to put it to memory. That's the one you want to place in your heart. So again, do what blesses and not what burdens. But what I want you to do before we get started, we're there on page 41, and I'm going to read James chapter 1, verse 1. That's going to be our our starting point tonight. And as we do that, I'm going to read it I'm going to ask you to turn to the back of your books. You're going to hold on to 40 and 41, but I want you to go back to page 214 because I'm going to get you in the habit. I think if there's one level that I could really challenge you to do is the writing of it. I just It's, it's fabulous to be able to do that. As you go through it and you work on it, it may be something that you do the last thing at night, first thing in the morning, whenever you can just kind of fit it in. It may not necessarily be when you're doing your study. But you just turn back to page 214 and you begin handwriting and copying the book of James. So I'm going to take a second here and let you look at James 1, 1, just the very first verse. And I want you to copy it over and onto your paper on, the, on page 214. If you need a Bible, I'm sure somebody right around you will be more than happy to let you see theirs. We also have copies up here, I can give that to you. And I just want you to take the time, take a second, and write James 1:1 in the back. You know, from my perspective, this is pretty cool. From my perspective, watching each one of you write this is pretty amazing. So I hope it's something that you will continue. We won't do this every week, but now you've got to start. Now you've got the start. Now it's ready, set, go, isn't it? So great, great, great opportunity to do that. It will forever be with you. You will not have uh, studied it quite this way before, but it is something very, very challenging. I I think I was challenged this week. We did a lot of... um, Very logistical information, a lot of studious information this week, and it really is laying a very critical, deep background just so that we can understand the entire book of James and the setting that it was written in. Um, James 1.1, let's take a look at it. It reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. All right, that's a lot, a lot of information. It really is. And the background behind almost every single one of those phrases and words gives us such a great illumination on the entire book. Now, it's not so much that we're focusing on James, although you've done a lot of work to understand who he is. It's not that. Who do we want to focus on? We obviously want to focus on who God is and ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, And then ultimately, uh, combining those things together, we're understanding the entire plan of salvation. It's a big, big, big idea. It's a big plan. It's a a majestic plan. It's a divine plan. And even in this opening phrase of this letter, we can already begin to understand getting some insight into that plan, believe it or not. So the first fill-in-the-blank that I want you to see is this. What James 1.1 doesn't say about the writer is as telling as what it does. It's as telling as what it does. And then go ahead and fill in the next blank. It says, servant, which in Greek, doulos, that's the Greek word for slave, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see, now when I read it in the NIV, it said servant, When we get down to a closer translation, a Greek translation of the word doulos, doulos literally means slave. And that is significant knowing the background that we know about James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, what we learned last week through Scripture was that he was very skeptical. He was an unbeliever. We we really looked at a lot of the we looked at two places in scripture about quotes. I think we got a pretty good personality as best we could out of scripture and the work that you did. Now what we see after James has become a believer and now as God has inspired him to write, he identifies himself, and the identification that he begins to describe himself is he doesn't say James the half brother of Jesus. He's not even making any kind of claim to that position. What kind of position does he claim? He claims the position of a slave. He claims the position as a slave. The interesting, th- interesting thing about that word doulos is that in the Greek, it was it meant a slave, it meant a person who was born into slavery. It wasn't necessarily, there were there was obviously you could acquire slaves, you could purchase them, but this word has a deeper meaning in that you were born into as, as a slave. Well, what, what does that mean? What, what exactly is James saying? Well, what he is, what he is describing is at the point of his conversion, at the point in which he be- became a believer as a follower of Christ, that he described himself as a slave born into slavery to his master, who is Jesus Christ. It's quite a telling identification of who James now sees himself and remember all by grace and all by mercy. Now we tend to look at the word slave and of course we have a horrible connotation on a a human level, on a horizontal level, but when we look at it in a vertical level, what we see is a perfect authority, a perfect king, a perfect master and a slave who is completely submissive to the love of that king and the love of that master, the justice of that master, and the discipline of that master. So we see a, a different, it's a vertical relationship that we need to understand that's going on that James is identifying with. So we have this testimony that James places himself in that position not mentioning that he's a brother he's not using that as a as a, a kind of a one up that I'm you know I'm part of the family kind of deal no he sees himself that he was he he sees himself in his identity to Christ and to Christ alone now what he how he identifies Jesus at this point is also important as a servant of God as a slave to God and of the Lord Jesus Christ now when James used those words he was he was using the word Lord again as authority but he was also using the word Christ and we think of that in in terminology if we if we think back into the Old Testament and a lot of this is where we're headed which is probably why I love it so much but what we're, what James was identifying was he was saying he was a slave and a servant of God and to the to the Lord Jesus the Messiah. Because Messiah translated back into the Hebrew of the Old Testament, Christ the word Messiah. So what does that tell us about James? The understanding of James now is Jesus fulfilled everything of the Old Testament. He is exactly who the Old Testament was foretelling that would come as the one of salvation. And he understood the depth of that. He, he, was, he, was, he was proclaiming that, he was stating that, and he identified himself in that context. And that's so important to us because we want to be able to say basically the same thing. Karen, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those, those, that operating identity... So we see Master and Messiah, and we see James in that context. Now, he is being inspired to write this letter, and it is significant as we, as we kind of cross into this a little bit more. I want you to understand that James is believed to be, the book of James is believed to be, and there's some controversy, the first written word of the New Testament. Galatians is the other one up for uh, the vote. There's some controversy. Was Galatians written before James? Was James written before Galatians? Uh, Great argument for both. Most fall on the side of James being the first book written. Now, what that tells us from the Old Testament in the book of Amos, and I want that just to kind of hit on your head, from the book of Amos because we know that James quoted that book, we're going to see a lot of parallel of James, the book of James, to the book of Amos. It's incredible. But in the book of Amos, we are told, the prophet Amos foretold that there would be 400 years of silence. There would be a famine of the word. A famine of the word. In other words, God would not speak to his people There would not be another written word until we see the book of James. Now, all the Gospels came after. They were written afterwards. All the letters of Paul, written after. So the significance of us getting ready to study this book of James was the first book, the first writing that God inspired through the Holy Spirit to be written in 400 years. I think it's a pretty big deal. I think we can say that's a pretty big deal as we begin to look at it and begin to, to put it in the context of what was going on in the salvation plan of God. We want to put it in the context of the Jewish people, and we certainly want to put it in the context of Gentiles, we're putting it in the context of church. We've gotten all of this information this week. But beyond everything, we want to see it in the context of this perfect plan of salvation of God. And it's all written in grace. It is all written in mercy. And it's all written in love. It's incredible. Incredible. All right, point number two is this. All right, the letter of James, now we've established who he is. He has identified himself. And then point number two is this. The letter of James is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. <clears throat> it's written to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And underneath that statement on your, on your uh, work page, there are a couple of bullet points. The first bullet point underneath that is the Greek word translated scattered is literally in the diaspora, all right? What in the world? What just happened? Like, what, what, what did I miss? All right, who did James write this letter specifically to? Tell me. To the scattered tribes. How many? The 12 tribes. What do we know about 12 tribes? Where do we find anything about that in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, who is that? Who are the 12 tribes? Well, the 12 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel which means it's encompassing all of the Jewish people. Now, James is writing it to the 12 tribes who are scattered. The word diaspora has a really uh, great meaning behind it. If you look at it, you can really kind of see the the word S-P-O-R. You see it right in the middle? What does that even make you think of? like scattered, seeds thrown, tossed out. And that's what it meant. It literally meant the word diaspora has has this agricultural context that means that it's like seeds being scattered. It's like seeds being scattered. So James is writing this to the 12 tribes of Israel who are scattered like seeds everywhere. He is specifically writing, of course, to the Jewish people who had become believers of Jesus Christ. He was writing that. I want us to look in the book of Acts, and that's in Acts chapter 8. We're going to see the text in Acts that explains, well, why are, the 12, why are the Jewish people, why are they scattered? In Acts chapter 8, which we know that the book of Acts is telling us of the acts of the Holy Spirit, It's the the book that documents for us the movement of the Holy Spirit in the birth of the church and as it began to grow. Now, again, remember with me, everything had taken place in Jerusalem, right? The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, everything had occurred in Jerusalem, kind of the center and the core. Well, how's the gospel going to get anywhere? The gospel's got to move. It's got to be taken. How is it taken? It's taken by people. It's taken by people who are on foot, who have mouths, and they begin to share, right? So this gospel message of salvation, God's plan of salvation, has got to get out to the world, right? Well, he's got a a plan for it. In Acts chapter 8, this gives us a little bit of information about what happened in Jerusalem. Verse 1. Now this is, uh, kind of picks up in the middle, but, and Saul, this is Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Saul, who is Saul? That's Paul. Now remember about last week, he was the one who was the persecutor of the church. So we see in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Whose death? Stephen. Who was Stephen? He was a follower of Jesus Christ. So he is being put to death by who? Saul. Is this not just, I mean, come on, the plan of salvation. All right, so we've got a persecutor. We know from last week, if it's the first time you've ever walked in to do a Bible study, you understand that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He became a believer. So he's changed from the one who was putting Stephen to death to now one that you read about this week who is now just zealous for this gospel message of life instead of the death that Paul was after. right, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, where? In Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. There's the word. You go back to the Greek. We're going to see that word diaspora in it. We'll see that in that word. So they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, godly men buried uh, Stephen and Mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Verse 4, those who had been scattered. So we see the seed being tossed. Do we not? We see the seed being tossed, scattered, preached the word wherever they went. Okay, what scattered? What did God use to scatter the gospel message? Persecution. Persecution. And I'm going to tell you, he still uses that. Is that what we would choose? No, but God has. And we have seen it. You've probably seen it. If you've done any kind of uh, reading or, or, or looking on, if you know anything about Voice of the Martyrs or third world countries, anything where we see persecution of Christians in third world countries or any country, any country, the gospel scatters. It becomes stronger. It's the most amazing thing. It's like if we're comfortable, we're not scattering. It's just, it, it just is us. It's just us. If we become comfortable and complacent, typically we won't scatter. We won't spread. But as soon as persecution takes place, then we either scatter and become bold or we fold. And faith wasn't real. It's one or the other. But God uses, has always used persecution. As soon as the blood hits the ground, it scatters and it becomes stronger. Can you imagine the enemy of God? He's thinking, I'll, I'll take care of that. I will shut them up. I will persecute them. And what happens is exactly the opposite. It makes the church bolder. It makes the church stronger. And it makes the church, it makes those scatter, stronger, bolder, and the message goes forth. It's God's plan of salvation. And in Acts chapter 8, and what we see, uh, this, this, this is exactly who James is writing to. You see, they had been in a core in Jerusalem. And now persecution had come to Jerusalem. What happened? They scattered. And James, this very first beginning inspired word of god who was god speaking to he was speaking to those jewish people who had become believers who had scattered with the gospel message does that mean it doesn't apply to us absolutely not because it applies to the church apply and it will apply to the church until christ returns but specifically in this context james wrote it to those who were scattered to those who can you imagine being tossed out from Jerusalem, tossed out from everything that you knew as a believer, tossed out to all of these areas with the saving message of Jesus Christ? That's what was happening. All right, let's look down a little bit further on your uh, your your guide and your workbook. Let's fill in a couple more blanks. I'm going to do several blanks here and then give you a little bit of an explanation because this just becomes again. It's, I find it's, very, it's, a, it's a studious approach to this, but at the same time, I want you to see the beauty of the plan of God. All right, the blanks will read this. James is the Old Testament name Jacob. James is the Old Testament name Jacob. All right, let's go ahead and go to the next bullet point. Greek transliteration of James is Jacobus. That's how it would be pronounced in Greek, Jacobus. Right? Okay. Now the Hebrew transliteration is everybody just going. This is just. This is why I came here tonight. You <laughs> know. This is all right. The Hebrew transliteration of James. Is Yaakov, Yaakov, All right? You're going, what in the world? All right, let's think about a Jewish boy being born in Jerusalem. And the parents are going to choose the name. They're probably going to go back. It would not be unusual, would it not be, to go back into the Old Testament names to choose a name for their son, right? So they chose the name, that through the Hebrew transliteration and then through the Greek transliteration, the name is Jacob. It would be like the parents of James, Mary and Joseph, choosing a name for their son, James, chose the name Jacob. It's just that when we're reading it in English, we see James, but it's gone through the transliteration of Greek. It's gone through the transliteration of Hebrew. All right, that's, you know, if that's here, in, out, whatever, it's okay. Do what blesses, not what burdens. There is a um, extra reading, I think it's on page 47, that Melissa gives us an even deeper explanation of how the transliteration even happens. What does that mean? I'm not going to go through that. You can read it, read it, skip it, whatever. The significant thing, I think, though, is that when we see this name, James, which in Hebrew, Mary and Joseph choosing Jacob, who was Jacob in the Old Testament? He was the father of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't think that's, nothing is a coincidence. And now we have James, is that not mind blowing? Now we have James, Jacob, writing to the scattered 12 tribes. We can't lose sight of the fact that James, the disciples, even Paul, and it's written, they would lay down their lives for the Jewish people, all of them, to receive Christ as their savior. That was was family. That's family. Remember last week we saw this kind of renovated look at the family of what Jesus did to create the spiritual family. And yet you know as well as I do, whatever members of your natural family, you know the burden on your heart that they would all come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You just, we just have that, we all have that. We have members of our family that we want to see that. Can you imagine that on the scale of a national sense of these disciples, apostles, wanting the entire nation of Israel to repent and to to accept Christ. This is the heart of James. As now writing, it's almost like the spiritual father of the 12 tribes scattered with the gospel message. It's It's an incredible plan. It's an incredible look into the perfect sovereign plan of God. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. All right, the next bullet point is this. James wrote this letter not as a—and this is is significant, and this is what um, Scott, in fact, is quoted from uh, commentary. James wrote this letter not as a Jewish Christian, but as a Christian Jew. He was writing with full hope that the Jews as a whole would turn to Christ. All right, what in the world— what in the world does that, how does that play a part? Well, if we look at that, we see that with the, with the debate and the issues that you studied about this week with the Jerusalem Council, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. It would be like us as Americans, as Christians, who happen to be of the nationality that we are, and you, you know, whatever, you may look at a different ethnic as your background. It would be like saying, well, you've got to become an American before you can become a Christian, that's, that's sort of what some of the thinking had in the, in these early stages was like, and but that's not the case. Obviously, it's not the case. You become you become a Christ follower. But what scholars and and commentators want us to understand what this is to try to look at it through this very difficult transition time of the early church and this is what i find is so remarkable not only of what god is doing what the holy spirit did in these first 50 years of the church imagine it there's nothing like it there's no pattern there's no documents that had the old testament but no documents as how to how to go forward. And then you've got Gentiles. My goodness, you did not sit down and have lemon poppy seed cookies and cantaloupe with salt with them. They were dirty. They were dirty. You did not have them in your home. You did not associate. The temple, the place of worship, was set up to where Gentiles couldn't go but so far. And then the Jewish people could go further. So this is bigger than just you know, maybe something that we can even think through. This was a huge, huge issue for the church to begin to work through. And yet the Holy Spirit was doing something to build the church and to grow the church and to give it a message and, and, a, and a mission. And so all of this had to be going on with men like James, men like Paul, men like Peter, the women who were involved, all of it. To, become, to come to this place of grace, come to a place of mercy, come to a place of love so that they could come to an understanding of what the mission was of the church and how to go forward with it. And yet, blend all of this together, what they had been living with for 4,000 years. What do you do with all of that? Well, that's what we read about. That's where we are. All right, the next portion on your on your teaching guide, this is another uh, quote from a commentator. I think it's footnoted over on the right-hand side. But the epistle, now what's the epistle? Well, that's, that's the letter of James. The epistle was penned in the days when Christianity and synagogue, all right, what in the world is synagogue? Well, synagogue at the time in Jerusalem was, the, was kind of the um, meeting place. We think of synagogue now as the place of worship. It was not in the time of this writing. The synagogue was the place of meeting, it was a place of learning, it was a place of teaching. Where was worship taking place? At the temple. At the temple. But the synagogue was the the core of the culture, of the Jewish culture. So what this commentator is is saying, this, this letter that James wrote was penned in the days when Christianity and the synagogue were not yet divorced when Jerusalem was still as Jesus knew it and was further still the center of Christianity as a religion and as an organization. I hope that makes some sense to you because it was still at the center. It had to grow from a location and Jerusalem was the location. But what was God's plan? Get it to the ends of the earth. Get it to every tribe every nation every people group there's there's no rank there's no file it is all equal it's got to move out so this letter of james being written to the 12 tribes scattered ultimately to the church universal are we do we see this a magnificent plan it's incredible incredible to see this okay so we've got all that in mind and that just helps I i hope giving you a little bit more um just some more foundation of what you worked on this week, and as you move forward. All right. Point number three is this, and I mentioned to this, mentioned this to you early in a, in the opening remarks that James might have been the first book of the New Testament written. That just wows me, because when God wants to, when He broke the silence and the inspired writing of the Holy Spirit through James, that this was what was significant to the church, to this new birth of the church, this first document, this first letter written. And I, there's a, again, there's a quote on your, um, on your guide, the epistle of James can take its natural place alongside other literature in the process of formation in the second decade of the Christian mission as the first surviving document of the church. So when we sit and hold, I mean, I think in awe of from Genesis to Revelation, there is a very unique place to hold the book of James. Because to me, I find it very personal just in the sense that as a, as a, as a Gentile, being grafted in to the God's chosen people, being grafted in, this was the first book written to the church, written to us. And so it has to be of such great importance to get, to understand. And it's such a practical book. It's an incredibly practical book. We're going to find it, as I said last week, it's, you're not going to master it. It's going to master you one way or the other. So as we study this early church, this is just impressive to me, that these, these chapters that we're going to study. All right, point number four is this. Alright, James was, but this is interesting, agreed that it was the first one written, and yet James was the last New Testament book to be admitted into the canon. Now, if I was what's the um oh, I just I just lost it. What's the game on TV where you get to call a phone a friend? What's it called? What was, do you wanna be a million Who wants to be a you know when you get to phone a friend because you get all right when it gets down to early church history and the canon and the councils and the years and the dates and we're talking from say 144 years after AD up to about 400 AD and you ask start asking me questions I'm like I need to phone a friend and I'm going to phone George Wilson so. When I saw all this technical information, it's just, you know, I kind of know it, and I'm pretty good at it, but I'm always like, oh, no, I better ask him one more time. He says, can you please get this this time? It's like, okay, after 17 years of teaching, I don't have it. Okay, I need it written down. I got to have this information one more time. So we go through it every time. It's like, phone a friend. Give me give me the information. All right, what's the canon? All right, the canon, uh, uh, yes, canon, and in, in it's just strict meaning means rule or standard means rule or standard all right maybe you've asked this question maybe you haven't maybe you've studied it and you know a whole lot more about it than i do fantastic but you sometime at some point maybe you've said well who picked these books to go in the you know from cover to cover who did this how do we know i mean eventually that may pop up in your head. How do we know when I say, when as a church, we say these 66 books inspired by the Holy Spirit are true. They are God breathed. How do you, you know, the question becomes, how do you know what happened? All right, this is it in a, this is it in post-it note form, okay? This is it in post-it note information because it is important. It really is important because eventually you, you might be challenged by that. Or you may be having that question. Maybe you just, you know, at some point you accept it by faith and that's it. But people will ask us. I get asked that, you know, often. And I find a friend, send him to George, and he goes through the whole thing. In fact, if you have a lot of detailed questions, he's sitting right there. You catch him afterwards. But in, there were two councils held. One in 144 A.D. and the other in 393 A.D. How did I do? And what they did, this council, they sat down and they began to look at the writings, Old Testament and New Testament, what we consider Old and New Testament writings. And there were criteria, and I'm going to give them very briefly. Some of you are so excited you can't stand it. Other of you, go ahead and get your can- other of you go ahead and get your cantaloupe and salt because you could care. And it's okay, do what blesses and not what what burdens. But I find it pretty amazing to see how this happened. All right, they sat down and they began to look at the writings, and there were standards, there were rules as they looked at the ancient documents. This was serious business, very serious business, because today as we stand and we say this is the inspired word of God, this is alive and active and breathing and has the power to transform lives, then who put it together? How was it decided? The first first standard was this. It was they began to look at the early church from the point of James all the way up, from up to about 144 AD, up to 393 AD, and they began to look at the at the writings of of leaders of the church, and how what scriptures did they use, and what did they use consistently in worship. And so that was one criteria. If they had a document that was never used, never really—I mean, we're talking about a lot of documents. If it was not used, it was it, that was one of the criteria that made it not legitimate. Because there was a a belief that as the church began to form, they held true to the Old Testament. And they began to hold true to the letters that were written to the church. All right, second standard was this. It had to have an apostolic origin. All right, what in the world does that mean? All right, who is an apostle? An apostle was one, if you remember from last week, was someone who Jesus appeared to from the time that he was crucified, after he was crucified and raised to life, before he ascended into heaven, he appeared, now he, scripture says he appeared to 500 and then to specific ones. And then remember he also appeared to Paul, which was after Jesus had ascended. An apostle was someone who was clearly called and clearly sent by Jesus Christ resurrected. That's the definition, the strict biblical definition of apostle. So as they began to look at this, the writings had to have an apostolic origin. It had, in other words, the writing had to come from someone who Jesus Christ himself had appeared to in bodily resurrected form and then sent with the message. The only addition to that was someone who had assisted and preserved an apostolic writing. Okay, who would that be? Luke. Luke. Luke had not, Jesus had not specifically appeared to him, but who did he write that, who did he write the book of Acts? Paul, all right? So there's a connection with every single New Testament book to an apostle. That made a standard. Anything else is tossed aside, which we can, you know, you can go and look on the Internet. You can start Googling it. That had to be a standard. You're going, why wasn't that book added? Why wasn't that? It has to meet the standard. It did not meet the standard of Scripture. It's tossed out. It's not inspired. All right? The third standard, it had to have the transcript, the manuscript could have no contradictions between other writings. That's pretty amazing when you've got what we call 66 books, numerous writers over thousands of years, and they are all, there's no contradiction. They are all supporting the salvation plan of God. No contradictions. Are there things that we you know, look at and maybe don't understand? Yeah, of course, but there's no contradiction. So that's the, that was the third standard. The fourth standard was this. Um, that as a council, that they had to come to a full agreement, that they were inspired by God and the Word had the power to transform lives. And that's all you know. There's there's more to that, but that was the standard. The final standard was this count. These two councils, and interestingly enough, they both they one took place in Carthage, Tunisia. The other took place. Um, in Hippo, which is also northern Africa, both of these councils, they had, there was not a vote. In other words, it wasn't like how many vote. How, it wasn't. It was either unanimous or not at all. And every one of the 66 books that we hold in our hands today were unanimously agreed upon as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Incredible. Why the debate about James then? If James was the last book to be admitted, and there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of text about it, what it boiled down to, and this is what becomes significant to us, because as you read the book of James, if you think about the book of James, one of the issues that, it, that comes up in it all the time is that there's not, when we look at it against Paul's writing, if we compare it to Paul's writing, the argument was, well, there's not a lot of theology in it, well, you know, there's not a lot of doctrine in it. We're not seeing a lot of doctrine about the crucifixion of Christ. We're not seeing a lot of information about the resurrection. We're not seeing, we're not reading about uh, major doctrine in the book of James. So it became a little bit controversy, controversial. And then uh, became James, if you, if you know anything about the book of James, there's this issue about works and faith. It lines up beautifully with Paul. There's no controversy. You just have to look at it, look at it, compare it, and see it. But what, what, what is not there, what, what was the, the debate over this book, was that there wasn't the, the clarity of what Paul wrote about grace and about mercy and about salvation. It seemed to be difficult to understand. But when we take it and what the councils, both councils came to the conclusion was, yes, it was inspired. And it becomes clear that it was inspired because of how James was inspired to write it and the influence of, of the book of James. Right, Where did, uh, as we look in James, and we see a lot of Old Testament um, analogy, we see a lot of Old Testament... Um, Words, we see a lot of things drawn from that. And it was accepted as that um, because it draws clearly, it draws from Proverbs and it draws specifically from the book of Amos. So there's no contradiction in James. Your fifth point on your teaching God brings up another argument that was used. And that's that the book of James draws straight from the well of Jesus' teaching more than any other New Testament author. Wow, wow. All right, let's think about that for a minute. We didn't get all the transliteration of the name and we didn't get the canon thing. And let's think about that just a minute. All right, James is who? The half brother of Jesus, skeptic, unbeliever. Possibility, a great possibility that he heard Jesus teach, didn't believe. But he heard him teach and james the book of james is considered to be the best it is the perfect inspired commentary on the sermon of the mount it is the perfect commentary on jesus's sermon on the mount i can't we can't go to scripture and say james was in attendance you know, maybe it, again, heard it. I don't know. I, I tend to think he heard it. He, heard, he knew of Jesus' teachings. Um, but James is considered to be, and you will see that. If you want to add on level six to your, to your work, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, and you will see it. Why? Because what was Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? He was talking about a transformation of the heart. When he begins to teach in Matthew chapter 5 about the Beatitudes, and he's talking about those things of love and joy and mercy and righteousness and being salt and being light, Jesus was talking about the transformation of the human heart. You see, James had grown up as all Jewish boys, girls. They grew up in a culture that had boiled down to doing everything externally. Does that mean every single one? No, not every single, not every single person. But the culture and the religious leaders of the day, their relationship to God was not how God had planned it. It was to be a heart relationship. And what it had evolved into by the time jesus appeared by the time james wrote was it had become a legalistic external exercise of a relationship i can't think of anything more cold more hollow more purposeless and certainly nothing of compassion and mercy and grace no wonder god inspired this word Because what James is getting at is the same principles that Jesus was teaching with the Sermon on the Mount. It's the same wisdom. James is considered to be the New Testament book of Proverbs because it is wise living. It's wise living. It's also considered to be a a commentary and um, up-to-date, current um, reflection on the book of Amos. So if you want to add level 7 to your study, go back and read the book of Amos. You know what the book of Amos, the prophet Amos was talking about? People getting comfortable. He was talking about a very prosperous northern Israel that was getting ready to be conquered by Assyria. Why? Because they were not glorifying God. The Hebrew nation was chosen by God not to become elite, they, were come, they, they had come to show the Gentile nations who God is. And with the failure of that came the birth of the church. All right, how does the church operate? Is the church going to operate in a legalistic, cold, hollow manner with all kinds of external exercises? Or do we see in the New Testament, starting with the book written by the half-brother James, is the church to be operating are we to supernaturally operate because our hearts have been transformed that's the church that's the church how are our hearts transformed transformed by the Holy Spirit what compels us now is it duty is it obligation is it burden is it rules is it legalism no no What compels and what changes the human heart is the Holy Spirit who comes in and pours God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace. When the church operates from a... That's the church universal. That's the local church you're standing in. That's your local... That's all of us. That is the universal church. That's the call of the New Testament. That's the call of James. The transformation of the human heart, transformed by mercy transformed by grace transformed by love the church will operate as it was intended to do and what will it do it will scatter the seeds of the gospel if we settle for legalism and we settle for outside condemnation if we settle for the external exercise of religion who wants it tell me who wants that How attractive is that? Is grace attractive? Is mercy attractive? Is love attractive? You bet it is. It's compelling. It's compelling. That's the church. And James was inspired to write this book. We will look at it. You could look at it and go, that's that's a lot of outward behavior. It is a lot of outward behavior because we outwardly behave, don't we? We outwardly behave. To examine the book of James and have the book of James examine each one of us, it's a transformation of the heart that ultimately transforms the world. It's an incredible book. What a ride! Point number six is this. We'll finish both of these up. The message of James can be captured in two words. Live it. Live it. You can read it. You can study it. You can complete this at the end of seven weeks or whatever. I would even go so far as to say, now the word never returns void, and I believe that. But you can memorize it. You can do it. You can be a student in your head. And I know all about being a student in my head because I love to be a student in my head, but I gotta be a student of the heart. I gotta be a student of the heart. That's where the two, that's where theology and just living it out come together. And the church works so effectively from that point. That's what moves us. That's what is attractive. To live it out, to learn how to live it out. The seventh point, our, our lessons conclusion is James salutation. All right in uh, James one one, you wrote it as greetings. That's English. <laughs> That's English. In Greek, the word is karein, karein, c h a i r e i n. And for those of us who are named Karen, I just kind of like that because it's real close. It's ka-rain. In fact, I have some people at work that call me Karen, which is pretty close. But it's Kyrene, and it means joy to you. I, unbelievable. James is getting ready. He is inspired to write this document that is talking about our mouths. Whoa. It's talking about loving our enemy. It's talking about how, how to live out the faith actively. I and mean, he's going to, he's going to get us practical, everyday things. And what I want to encourage you is let it be a joy to you. Let it be a joy to you that God wants to do something different in your life, that maybe he wants to get a hold of our words. Maybe he wants to get a a hold of how we are, um, uh, of temptation, of desires. We're going to see a lot. It's all heart issues. But what I love is he doesn't say burden to you, does he? He says joy to you, joy to you. You know what? Obedience brings joy. It's difficult. It's hard. We've just finished a whole series here at Renovation about rest where we learned that obedience brings that soul and that heart kind of rest. Obedience to the word, letting it apply to your life, brings joy it may be some struggle through it but ultimately joy to you God to you it's transforming to you so maybe that just becomes you know what if you memorize one thing maybe it's greetings maybe it's just joy to you may the study be a joy to you let's pray together Heavenly Father, as we step into this one more week, another week, I pray that your spirit will bring conviction, transformation, so many, many things. But I do pray it brings joy. Just the joy of learning. Joy of transformation. The joy of being... Conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The joy of knowing what it's like to live not for yourself but for the kingdom. The joy of knowing what it's like to have the Holy Spirit just fill you to the point where you are overflowing and compelled with a heart that's driven by love and by the mercy and by the grace of Jesus Christ. Joy to us. Fruit of the Spirit. Joy. God, I pray tonight. Walked in unjoyful, tired, worn out, life struggles. God, I pray through the end, and we're going to see that. First verses of, of James, count it all joy. Count it all joy. God, I thank you. I thank you for this first written word inspired, breaking 400 years of your silence. I pray for the churches represented here specifically. I pray for the church universal, that we allow your Holy Spirit to control us, to supernaturally equip your church, to transform it so that we can scatter the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.